0: Humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 213, and I had a conversation with Tony Green. He teaches at the Bishop O'Dowd School here in California. He teaches social studies, African American studies. He is a moderator for the Black Student Union. And he is now officially a film producer, documentary films. So that's exciting. I learned of Tony when I was surfing the internets uh, looking at Instagram, and came across a post that he was in, and he was talking about the um, long hot summers, and that's that caught my attention. And so I reached out to him and asked if he'd be on the show, and he very kindly said yes, and. We got him on right away, and I'm really excited about that. I learned so much in this episode. Uh, I'm really excited to do a bunch of deep diving uh, into the internets and books and things uh, because of some of the stuff we talked about I didn't know about, and I love that, uh, which is, you know, happens a lot that I don't know about stuff. So I'm <clears throat> excited to, to learn more after after talking with Tony. Usual stuff social media, Hey Human Podcast can be found on Instagram and Facebook. You can find my personal social media under Susan Ruthism, and that's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, If you want to know about other things I do, my paintings and music and and writings and such, that can be found at SusanRuth.com. Of course, HeyHumanPodcast.com is where you're going to find information about all the shows, and uh, especially the links page. and this episode, there's a lot of reference material. Uh, please go to the links page and, and check that out. It's going to be a bevy of stuff for you to read and learn about and maybe learn more about. There were some things that Tony and I spoke of that... Uh, You know, I just had a tiny, scratch-the-surface knowledge of, and it was was neat to hear him go deeper into it. Man, I would have loved to have had him in my high school history class. That would have been so cool. Really, I could tell he's a great teacher. He just... You can see the passion of people of teachers who just who love teaching, and he's been doing it for over thirty years, and he still you see still has that fire in his eyes and loves what he does and loves educating minds. So it was exciting for me to to be able to talk with him. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can email me Susan at HeyHumanPodcast dot com. I welcome that. And thanks for listening. Thanks for spreading the word. I really appreciate it. Here we go. All right, Tony Green, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. You're in California, correct?
1: Yes, uh, Berkeley-Oakland border, California.
0: Okay, I'm in Los Angeles,
1: so. Okay, we're neighbors, then.
0: Yeah, that's right. And uh, you teach at, uh, is it a high school, the Bishop, is it a private school or?
1: Yes, a Catholic school, Bishop O'Dowd High School, about 1,250 students.
0: Wow, I think that's how many people were in my graduating class.
1: Oh, so so what's, are are you from Los Angeles originally?
0: No, I grew up in Seattle. Oh, okay. Yeah, and we had a huge high school. So, how long have you been teaching there?
1: I've been teaching there for 33 years and I've been teaching 40 years overall.
0: You don't look old enough to have been teaching that long. <laughs>
1: well, well, thank you, <laughs>
0: thank you. Hi, tell me where you're from originally, are you from California or?
1: Hey, no, I'm actually a naturalized American citizen from Portugal.
0: Oh, cool, okay.
1: Yeah. How- I was going on to Sh- Teixeira Island, and when- the third island in the Portuguese uh, chain, uh, Azores Island.
0: And how old were you when you came to America?
1: About three years old. Oh. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Were your parents yeah, military or is...
1: My dad was Air Force. So he was Air Force in Vietnam. and He was Army Air Corps in Korea. Right. So, you know, he was had an interesting case because he was one of the uh, the first units to actually integrate uh, the nation's military. He was like an experimental unit, uh and what they would do, it was called force cohesion. So his military base was in the deep south in Valdosta, Georgia, right on the Georgia-Florida border in 1950. And they had a mixed unit. So his uh, uh, his athletic teams would be you know mixed with all races when it was illegal because of uh, Jim Crow segregation. And their cheerleaders would be all young, blonde-haired white women. And so what they were trying to do was they were trying to test to see if that experiment would work out in battle. And uh, at the time in Korea, um, we were, you know, the the, uh, United Nations forces were almost driven off the Korean peninsula. It was called the Battle of the Pusan Perimeter. And so what the United States realized is that they had to do something quick. And integration would be the answer, you know, because it would bring in more troops. So he was part of that group.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. That's it's, it's rather, rather like when uh, Abraham Lincoln realized that he needed more troops.
1: Yes, the same situation. Mm-hmm. And so then we were called. And like always, we responded. Yes.
0: Did your dad speak about how it was in those early stages? Uh, how was the reception from the white soldiers and, and even his, you know, people that were black? and?
1: Well, you know, not really. No, not really. But my... Uh, uh, my uh, stepdad did. So my stepdad, of 30 years, who was different, and that's the one that was featured in the uh, article by uh, you know by by Gene Yang. He did, uh, and uh, things were completely and totally segregated for him. So he was uh, first Marine Division uh, during the Iwo Jima uh, campaign, and he was a uh, you know like I said in the article, uh, he was a stretcher bearer. So he collected bodies and body parts and you know 110 degree weather
2: Mm.
1: and they hopped from island to island you know and and you know other interesting thing about him is his father was lynched before he was his father was lynched about a year and a half before uh, um you know he was drafted into the military and actually thrown in the Mississippi River and you know body never uh uh you know, uh, you know, there was no no real uh, push by law enforcement to find the culprits, but it was a very small town, Scotlandville, so it would have been, would have been easy to find the culprits.
0: Mm-hmm. I imagine well, that to go and serve a country that doesn't even see you as a full human being, I, I don't right. even know how to wrap my head around that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And both of them, neither one of them could vote when they got back uh, to the States. They couldn't vote. You know, and they couldn't uh, receive the same accommodations after, you know, uh, you know, serving, you know, honorably, because between both of them they had seventy-five years of military service, you know, in five wars.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you
1: know, but they still couldn't vote.
0: It's unreal. the The flag behind you is that for one of them.
1: Yeah. So if you look at that flag, you know, the flag is my dad's service flag. He was buried with honors. Gave okay, the bullet that shell. Above the flag, that's uh, Papa's uh, shell because they both received, uh, you know, military honors. Yeah, so that belongs to them.
0: And they get the, the 21 guns salute.
1: Yes, actually not 21 guns anymore, you know, because it's of military. three, attacks. right? Yes, yes, yes.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. Right. Uh, is the history in your family being uh really so entrenched in american history and in wars and all that is that what brought on your passion for for becoming a history teacher
1: yeah you know and actually a few things you know from my uh, um you know my mother's side of the family in ocala florida they are all educators you know they're all educators and uh, um you know, so that's one of the things that my mom pushed. You know, she was a, a student nurse. She went to to uh, Florida A&M uh, University, uh, you know, a traditionally black college, uh, you know, in Florida. And, uh, you know, my aunties went to Bethune-Cookman, traditionally black colleges, and they were all in the uh, teaching profession. So my mom started out as a nurse uh, for Kaiser, which has got a whole interesting background because they... Were established to, uh, you know, essentially save the, uh, uh, you know, the shipping industry in Richmond, California, Kaiser shipyards, uh, because the industries operated twenty four seven. So what they had to do, if you were injured, they would um, give you uh, quick managed care and put you back on the line so you could create some of these ships. Some of them were actually, you know, fully functional within seventy two hours. You know, and it's one of the reasons why the Bay Area became so uh, integrated is because of the need for the military, you know, between, uh, you know, the shipyards and the munitions industry and the, the 12 military bases.
0: So what year, may I ask what year you were born? Yeah, I was born in
1: 1958.
0: 1958. Yes. So you came of age at a very tumultuous time.
1: Very, very tumultuous time. In fact, my, uh, uh, you know, my, my first school, it was Flossen Elementary School, and it was in a housing project in Vallejo, uh, Floyd Terrace Housing Project. Uh, it partially burned down in the long, hot summers. Yeah, it partially burned down in the long, hot summers. So that, you know, uh, you know that was it, was, it was a stressful time, but it was, uh, you know, it was what we went through. You know, we were pretty much, I would say, not really isolated uh, in our part of town because we welcomed it, you know. But uh, if we ever you know, left that perimeter, you know, we had a perimeter around us. It was Highway 29, Broadway and Sereno Drive. If we ever left those com- confines, you know, the uh, you know, treatment outside was pretty different. But uh, mm-hmm. I grew up in Vallejo, California, which was very much a military town at the time, you know, surrounding a uh, Mare Island naval base.
0: Did you get the sense that because you were a military family that you had a protection even if you stepped outside those boundary lines or did it all bets were off? Not, a,
1: not at all. Yeah, yeah, not at all. You know, the... Uh, you know, we protected ourselves when we stepped outside the bounds because it wasn't the only black neighborhood. There were five black neighborhoods in Vallejo. And our neighborhood was one of the, uh, you know, our neighborhood is a historical landmark. It's called the Lofus Track. And the reason being is because, uh, you know, Mr. Williams, uh, Mr. B.W. Williams had a construction company. It was an all-black construction company. So it was the first... uh, um, you know, construction company west of the Mississippi that was all black that built a complete housing track. So we actually have a memorial up in our neighbor, neighborhood today. Yeah, it was called the Loafus Housing Track.
0: Right. You spoke of the long, hot summer. And I think here's the thing that I've noticed just on social media and talking with people. I, You know, I moved here. I moved to L.A. I lived in Tennessee for 13 years. I lived, And I grew up in Seattle. These are very different worlds, Uh and the thing that strikes me is that there is little knowledge about black history in America, and yet it's, it's a rich right. history. And right. the last couple of weeks, we're talking about, you know, looting, and they want to put this base on it. I was like, do you all even know any of the history of that's that's you know the long hot summer do you know about you know what happened with rodney king Do you know what happened in watts do you know what happened and people just don't know do you know about the bombing uh, you know in oklahoma the the black wall street do you know about there's just so many things that people are ignorant to and i think they they for some reason in some people's minds it's not across the board of course but in some people's minds there's this idea that all of a sudden there's this upstartedness no god read some history books
1: please Yeah, it's, it's it's a very dangerous thing, too. It's a very dangerous thing. You know, what I explain to to my, uh, you know, students, because I teach, you know, world history, sometimes U.S. history, economics and foreign policy, uh, African-American studies, the a class, my, my newest class is called The Rise of Black Nationalism, The Caribbean Coffee Cane and Culture. So what I always do is I start off with... Uh, you know, talking about, you know, the common nature of humanity, okay? We all have one direct descendant from Eastern Africa, you know, geneticists call her mitochondrial Eve, okay? And she gave birth to all of us. And what we do is as we migrate out of Africa, you know, we, we stay in Africa for about 210 out of 250,000 years that we've been humans, we don't become non Africans till about 40,000 years ago. And so that's when we start adapting to the environment that we face, right? And then we start creating these variations that we know now is this status called race. Right. You which know, which race is, is
0: a lie.
1: Fictitious. Yeah, race, yeah. Yeah. It's a complete lie. Yeah. But if you look at the country, if you look at the, uh, the English colonies, the only reason why the English colonies survive is because of two crops. One is tobacco, one is rice. Both of those are crops that were grown completely at this time in the plantation system by African people. Rice was actually smuggled in in the hair of African people who had come here. And what they did is in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, actually in the Sea Islands of Charleston, South Carolina, they planted that crop and the uh, overseer saw its value. So then you have this huge industry uh, develop. But uh, the English colonies were a failed experiment until African people came along. And if you look at history that way, okay, you can see the importance of who we were. You know, we built all of the, the uh, plantations in the South. Uh, most of them were built directly by a group called the Mindy, who were expert builders, Using no nails, they would fit these plantations together, houses like puzzles. You know, I visited quite a few, my wife and I. Uh, and, uh, you know, you'll see, like, uh, in New Orleans, there's a plantation called, uh, uh, called Laura. It's a 25,000-square-foot plantation. Okay, how long do you think it took to build 25,000 square feet.
0: A long time, especially... A A long time. That's what
1: what most people think. But it actually took about 14 days. So it took seven Mindy using two canoes 14 days to build a 25,000 square foot plantation. And they did not use any nails. They fit it together like a puzzle. They also calculated... Flood stage from the Mississippi, uh, um, the Gulf of Mexico, and Lake Pontchartrain to be 25 feet. So they built it 25 feet up from the foundation. So when they flooded, and they flooded every year, you know, just like you saw on Katrina, plantation house never flooded. You know, so these people were brilliant.
0: They were engineers, brilliant. along with being architects and
1: and yes. others. Yeah. Yes, and so that's who we were. And if you teach history like that, you know, and you don't teach the idea of, of, of uh, racist status, you start to look at the humans who contributed to the greatness of the United States differently.
0: It is interesting to me if you go back through, I think of the pyramids, for example, and there's the rhetoric that, oh, well, aliens have to had to have done it because look at the pyramids. And, and I think, wow, that really gives a disservice to a whole lot of people that had incredible ingenuity
1: oh yes yes it's
0: interesting that we want to take that away from people
1: right but you know in order to create uh, a slave class what you first have to do is dehumanize them so you figure these pyramids were built about six thousand years ago and the khufu's pyramid was seamless about 486 feet in height so it wasn't stacked blocks like it looks like now. It was seamless, built with tour limestone. It was this, this white, it looked like white smooth marble. And you figure there were 2.5 million stones, the average of 7,000 pounds a piece, cut to the exactness that it fit together seamlessly without the use of any adherent like cement. And you had one uh, uh, you know, brilliant engineer, Imhotep, who not only designed the pyramid, but also created medicine in the first medical textbooks. One person. Okay, so that shows the ingenuity, you know, of the, you know, uh, of people from Africa. And, you know, of course, there's about 1,400 different uh, ethnic groups in Africa. So, you know, Africa is a pretty broad, you know, concept. But, you know, the fact that you would define anyone from that continent you know, as one person, you know, being black and assigning them, you know, inferior status is, is mind-boggling.
0: Yeah, it's but mind-boggling. Boy, humans love to do it. I mean, we, right. we love to generalize and to lump a singular individual in as the spokesperson for yes. all. It's a, it, it's that superiority uh, bullshit, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs>
1: Oh, no, I don't mind you saying it. White supremacy, that's what it is. You know, white supremacy has no validity. But, you know, it was created to give status, you know, to, and, you know, I'm Portuguese. You know, between us and the Spanish in the uh, 15th century, we were the ones who created this. We used to call it the purity of blood laws. And so what it would do is it would give, you know, sanction for leadership to anyone with light skinned, anyone with dark skin. Was uh would be subservient yeah but we created it so when we launched the age of discovery between the Spanish and the Portuguese we would take that attitude anywhere we traveled and what I used—I tell my kids is us as Portuguese you know Portuguese with the original mer- merchant semen and what we would do is as we traveled we spread our semen all over the world so you will see Portuguese I bet you know, the kids
0: love that one <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, you'll see Portuguese of every single nationality, okay, but what you also see is you see colorism on this this manichaeistic scale, this scale mm-hmm. lightness superior to the darkness. And uh, the Spanish used to call it Las Pinturas de Costas. So they created the original pictures called the pictures of the cast. There was about a hundred and it would depict the original races. now we've cut it down to five, but originally Las Pinturas de Costas would depict any kind of what they perceived as a racial mixture. So if you had a African person mixed with a native person, you had one race. If that native person mixed with an African person, you had another race. If that uh, um, African and native person mixed with uh, uh, another native, you would have another race. Okay, but that shows you the... the, uh, um, you know the, the really lack of scientific uh, um, support for the idea of race—it's totally made up. You know, one hundred percent. Besides, the, the idea—the
0: idea of Caucasian is is make believe as well. The idea that that signifies whiteness is a lie. Right.
1: Which is ridiculous because if you look at you know the people of the Caucasus Mountains, they're not white; they're brown. Yeah, so it's it's just, the thing is just totally made up. And we've given it so much sanction that you have, you know, black men and black women murdered in the street in the 21st century. You know, based on this false ideology, based on status and nothing else but status. You know, and, and this white supremacy thing is real and it gave control over the people's... Uh, that uh, Western European countries would conquer during that period of colonialism and exploitation.
0: Yeah, you tell a lie enough times and you can turn it into a truth.
1: Exactly. And if you infuse it into the educational system where everybody believes it, Mm. it becomes true.
0: Yeah, I think back to my high school days and my, uh, my history classes and now as an adult realizing how absolutely full of crap and right. my, my history classes were. They jumped right. such an insane level. And and it's so biased. You right. know, the they're, they're, the history of the Americas based around this villainous, but of course, right. deified Columbus. Deified when I was right. a kid. Now, of course, <clears throat> when we actually look at the truth of it, not a great guy.
1: Right. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. And they miss
0: and he, they miss uh, Port Royal. They miss you know. There's like all these other places of importance that just completely erased. Right,
1: right. And and that's what puts us in this situation that we're in today. Is this misunderstanding of who we are as Americans and the contributions that uh, um, you know America became you know this dominant civilization because what we did is we took the best and the brightest of all uh, uh, walks of life around the world. And unfortunately, what we did is exploit them. You know, and we exploited them and treated whatever they had of value that they would bring to the table. We treated them as commodities and even humans and human life. You know, that's a very dangerous, uh, uh, very dangerous you know, a very dangerous thing.
0: Absolutely. That
1: was a very dangerous thing.
0: I'd like to say to anyone... I challenge you to go a day, 24-hour period, without using anything, reading anything, listening to anything, uh, any, one day that was not made by a person of color. Good luck. Because we're surrounded by, right. I mean, everything, our computers, right. our, uh, LASIK surgery, yes. uh, the glass in your, in your homes, the guitar, uh, music, God knows music, uh, the, the greatest minds of literature, uh, the light that you stop at a stoplight for—it's so frustrating. Blood transfusions. Blood transfusions, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, oh my gosh, tons. That Henrietta Lacks—you wouldn't have, right. you wouldn't have half of the medical uh, discoveries without her.
1: Right, right. It's a hundred percent true. You know, I had a pretty serious. Uh, you know, medical issue in January, you know, I was in, uh, you know, in Texas actually uh, delivering a, a presentation to a group called the uh, National Black Student athlete Summit at the University of Texas. And 15 minutes before uh, my presentation, I had passed out uh, and I wasn't able to do my presentation to the next day. But it turns out that, uh, you know, my heart had stopped for 10 seconds. Oh, my. And they didn't find out until I went back to Oakland. So I had to go through all these different uh, you know, heart procedures. And I had transfusions. And uh, everybody who was in, because I was in the ICU for about 17 days. And the thing that I noticed is that uh, everybody in there, you know, and their families were so worried about whether they were going to live or not, you know, race was not even a concern. You know, my neighbor, uh, actually his name was Fred, uh, you know, in the, uh, in ICU, uh, when my wife and I first walked in, he was watching, you know, Fox, you know, and had it blaring loud and everything. And I'm like, oh, here we go. But we ended up being the best friends in the hospital because we were in there for like seven days. And we saw the common interest because we were that close to, you know, whatever happening. And, you know, when things become that acute, you start to look at life differently. And when they were transfusing my blood, I could have cared less where it came from, you know. But that shows who we are as humans. You know, we're not racist. We haven't been here long enough. There haven't been enough variations. So that status has done a lot of damage. You know, that status of race has done a lot of damage.
0: I wish that we would start from a place of sameness instead of place of otherness. But of course that touches on how humans feel about themselves. I, I firmly believe mm-hmm. that we treat other people based on how we feel about ourselves. You know, yes. if there's a false yes. ego that, you know, the ego is a, li- a liar <laughs> telling you that right. you are somehow better than that's, that's within you. That's, that starts with you right. and ends with you period. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you know a lot about The Long Hot Summer. That was how I learned of you in the first place was because as I was doing some research, I came upon the, the cartoon uh, right. of you talking about it. Can Will you go into that a bit and your experience?
1: Into the cartoon of The Long Hot Summer? The Long Hot Summer. <laughs> okay. Well the long, hot summers, this is the interesting thing. Uh, and I think I told you that, uh, you know, uh, me and another friend, you know, a friend had called me up, uh, his name is Kurt Robinson. And, you know, the interesting thing about Kirk, and I'm going to get to the long, hot summer and how we're going to a- address it is that, you know, uh, um, the second time my heart stopped in the hospital, you know, I had a class, you know, the, uh you know, the rise of black nationalism. And I was really afraid that I was not going to be able to come back and, and uh, you know, teach that class. And in that class, since it's the, uh, uh, you know, the class covers from Malcolm X's birth through the black nationalist movement, we cover the long, hot summers. Um, so I called up my friend, Kurt Robinson, who was actually the first black sports attorney you know, in a nation's history. And uh, he was one of my mentors in college and he took over the class for me. But he calls me up this past, uh, or last Monday, as a matter of fact. And he says, you know, Tony, let's put together a movie about this rebellion that's taking place. And he wanted me to do the, sort of set the historical foundation for it. And so I called one of my former students, Ayanna Ziegler, this great young black female uh, uh, filmmaker to put together this movie. And so what I did is I started to establish a historical foundation for this movie. I did not start with the long, hot summers. That's going to be in the second part. But the long, hot summers would not have taken place without African-American GIs who participated in World War I. And they were nicknamed the New Negroes once they came back. Because once they went over to Europe, what they experienced in Europe is that there was no discrimination against Black people in Europe. So they were treated equally.
0: That's why Baldwin Maybe, went to France, right? James Baldwin. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, he's uh, one of my could, literary
0: heroes. I love James Baldwin. You said what now? He's one of my literary heroes. Yes. Uh, yeah.
1: And the reason being is because of that. You know, that experience they had in France. And they saw the black, you know, African soldiers fighting. And they started to gain this sense of esteem and they got into, you know, the literary movement, like you you said, and came back as new Negroes because they weren't thinking like slaves anymore. You know, Alain Locke coined that phrase, the new Negroes. And he was one of the foundations of the Harlem Renaissance. And they would start the civil rights movement and they would start the Harlem Renaissance based on that. But they were also now assertive, so there would never be another pogrom in the black community. There would be violence, but it would be two-sided violence because now they were fighting back because they had been trained and they had esteem. So they were, these uh, initial, the foundation for the Long Hot Summers was established there uh, in 1919 called the Red Summers. All right. And so that's where we're going to start that movie from is the red summers. The second part is going to be the long, hot summers and the foundation for the long, hot summers was exactly the same as the foundation, you know, from the, uh, you know, from the, uh, um, the, uh, the red summers, which was the military returning back from conflict and feeling a greater sense of esteem. Cause I told you about my, uh, um, You know, my dad's experience in Korea. Korea was the nation's first attempt to integrate the military. Vietnam was the nation's first attempt to create an integrated armed forces. And there was the first integrated armed forces completely was during the Vietnam War. Those soldiers between those conflicts came back with a much different attitude and higher expectations. So when they were mistreated by police violence during the 1960s, they would respond.
0: When freedom, and, that, freedom and self-esteem becomes its own rebellious act, there is definitely something broken with the system. If freedom is a rebellious act, and yes. self-esteem and self-worth, if those are considered somehow rebellious, then whoa, right. let's get deep into that because that's, that's insane. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Especially in a country whose whole foundation was based on a rebellious act and whose whole foundation supposedly is supposed to be based on the idea that all humans are given by God inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So how could the looting now be considered as a rebellious act when that's the basis of a country? Boston Tea Party because the, the, the color of the, of the
0: skin is different that's why now yeah. exactly <laughs> yeah 100% yeah
2: 100% it's the
0: same reason why protesting you know with an armed militia at the footsteps of a Capitol building was okay but suddenly anyone walking through the streets saying with hey. heavy weapons. Yeah right like that was okay but walking through the streets oh. and demanding equality and not being have the shit beat out of you just because you're black right. What a concept exactly. but boy were they that was apples and oranges to so many people which again people are coming from where they feel about themselves and I think that there is right. a great fear amongst that particular kind of white person that thinks, oh, shit, you know, we've been high on the hog for quite a while, and who are these upstarts, (laughs) you know? Right, right.
1: And when all everybody is doing is looking for the same rights, the same rights that are guaranteed by the law of the land.
0: Right, and what a concept. You don't get to say the Constitution is only okay here, but not okay here. It doesn't work that way. Either you're a constitutionalist... Or you're not
1: exactly, and so you know, back to the long hot summer. So, if you look at those, those uh, um, that civil unrest, the civil unrest occurs in all of the cities that we as black people move to between the first migration to the east coast to support the country for World War One and the second migration that we move to to the west coast to support the country during World War II. So those were the people who reacted, you know, those, those sons of those first migrants who moved to support the war, you know, and they were assertive, you know, they left the South with certain expectations, you know, to leave the viciousness of the South. You know, my mom was, was visited by the Klan in Central Florida on a regular basis, but they left to, you know, uh, you know, to leave that viciousness, and they came here to experience the same thing, but at that point during the 1960s, they had been uh, influenced by the participation in those wars, and they were, they were assertive, and they had high expectations, and their kids had high expectations. You know, during the, uh, uh, during the Detroit World Series, you could actually see the city of Detroit burning in the background during the game. And my man, uh, Kurt Robinson, is from Detroit. So he remembers those those riots, you know, very personally. Very personally. Yeah, but those long, hot summers would happen. Every single summer, you could expect them to happen you know, and the same thing. You know, everybody knew it was going to happen. You know, these things were going to be out of control. The you black
0: know. nationalists. How how did they become a big part of this uh, movement? It, in my understanding of Malcolm X, that even he had an arc of his belief system and 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 how he started and where uh, what at the height of. Um, Uh, Nation of Islam how he felt about it and then actually starting to not he still maintained being a Muslim but he started stepping away from the uh, uh, What's his name
1: Elijah Muhammad so if you look at Malcolm X Malcolm X's parents were Garveyites They were followers of Marcus Mosiah Garvey and Marcus Mosiah Garvey created the largest black mass movement in the history of the world. It was called the Universal Negro and Improvement Association. And what Marcus Garvey did is essentially is he created a whole separate infrastructure for black people to succeed in the Western world. And he had black hospitals. He had uh, black airlines. He had a black steamship uh, company. All right. He created black stores because he felt that uh, African American people in the United States and in the Caribbean were not going to get a fair shake. And the interesting thing about him is he's from a group called the Maroons. Okay, and the Maroons were African people in the Caribbean who never fell victim to slavery as an institution because they would always fight back. Yeah, they were called Maroons. And so he was a Maroon. So Culturally, he was given, you know, that that uh, uh, I would say that psychological strength. And since he did the same thing in developing that Universal Negro Improvement Association and Malcolm X's parents were Garveyites, that's how he grew up to think of African-American people as equal to anyone on the planet. All right. Early part of his life. You know they were solid his father was lynched too his mother was thrown into an insane asylum okay that's when he started to struggle and then he got involved you know in a lot of uh, uh, illicit activities that trap a lot from our community you know, are trapped in those same illicit activities until they come to that realization malcolm gets his realization once he's thrown into prison And essentially he's thrown into prison because he's acting out of his prescribed role in society. He was having relationships with white women,
2: Mm -hmm. you
1: know, and that that was a threat. And it always has been a threat in the United States, you know, because the eugenics movement and fascism, you know, regards to race starts here and goes to Europe. It doesn't start in Europe and comes here. Oh,
0: I didn't know that. I thought that was a yeah, Hitler. Was. Well, I mean, I, I assume long before Hitler, yeah. there was the idea of keeping races pure, but I thought that he Hitler was like the poster child.
1: <laughs> yes, he, Hitler is the poster child, right? But Hitler gets the idea from here, the eugenics movement from here in the United States. We had a, you know, the the, uh, the Nazis sold out in the 1930s. They sold out Madison Square Garden. I did know that.
0: Yes. I remember seeing uh, pictures of that. That's right. Right.
1: Huge movement. Klan almost had a president here in the United States. So teach that in history. If you really want to know why uh, black people are so angry when they see time after time after time, black men and women killed not just by police. there was an incident I believe in Georgia by just some neighborhood folks. the kid was the young man was just jogging through the neighborhood yeah. and he was murdered right so Malcolm sees this and so it influences him when he goes into prison and he meets this this real OG uh, you know prisoner by the name of Bimbury and Bimbury starts to talk about him and educate him. In African history, and at that point, Malcolm starts to come to this realization that something ain't right.
0: And that that and guy talked about black superiority, right? He was he that was his wasn't that his thing? If I remember, I, I haven't read uh, autobiography of Malcolm X in a while, but it, I remember him. Part of the thing was you've been lied to. There's no such thing as white superiority. And in fact, the blacks are more superior. He, there was like a shift. In an understanding for Malcolm X.
1: Yes, because Bembridge was saying historically, we were talking about the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. Historically, if you look at the Egyptians, the Egyptians precede the Greeks by about three thousand, you know, twenty five hundred to uh, twenty five hundred years. Mm-hmm. And so, the Greeks actually get their knowledge from Kemet. Okay, that's the, the, what the, the Egyptians call themselves. They get their knowledge from Kemet, then they bring it to the West, and they establish the foundation for Greco-Roman or Western culture. Mm. But its origin is actually East African. Mm-hmm. And so when Malcolm starts to realize this, he's like, well, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Then why are we in the position that we're in, not only here, but throughout the entire African diaspora, in the Caribbean and Central America and South America and Africa, we are in that same status, with the exception of Ethiopia, because they were able to successfully fight, you know, uh, you know fight, uh, uh, you know, the Italians under uh, Emperor Haile Selassie. You know, that's why he's revered. You know, but so Malcolm comes to this realization that, hey, something is wrong here. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to correct that wrong, right? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out and I'm going to fish for the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and I'm going to bring these souls back. He used to call them the lost found Negroes in the American wilderness. And I'm going to go get those lost founds and I'm going to teach them the truth. And what we're going to do is we're going to create a foundation, you know, for building... uh, economic social and cultural independence in the United States so that was Malcolm's thing and his uh, uh, the problem he had was with religious doctrine and that's where the friction ends mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. you know but if you look if you look at Malcolm when Malcolm goes on his own journey he really starts to accelerate so when he leaves the nation of Islam he really starts to accelerate he starts to understand you uh, um, you know, what was going on in Bandung, Indonesia? Have you ever heard of the Bandung Conference?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Bandung Conference was a conference of newly independent nations in 1954 who had gained their freedom from European colonialism. And so they had a collective meeting in Bandung, Indonesia, where they started to set the stage for the future. You know, now that we're independent, what are we gonna do? And so what you start to see is you start to see the rise of these uh, um, these independent nationalist leaders, um, you know, in the, they used to call it the third world, in the third world, so they could make plans for the future. And Malcolm starts to think, what if African people do the same thing? This is after he leaves the nation of Islam. And then he travels to Africa and he sees the uh, um, you know the Africans led by uh, Krame and Nkrumah, you know Jomo Kenyatta, um, developing this idea of African unity, the organization of African unity, right? Because what uh, um, you know what uh, Lumumba, Krame and Nkrumah figured out is that if we take all these African states and we take the wealth of Africa, which is the basis of uh, Western capitalism is that wealth from Africa, right? If we take that wealth from Africa and we use that wealth, we could essentially compete with anybody. We can compete with anybody. And that's when they become dangerous and that's when you start to see those assassinations against those African leaders. But Malcolm brings the same idea back to the United States. He said, why don't we create this organization of African-American unity?
0: Because it's an economy problem. It's a it's a in racism and classism. And yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. That's when he becomes dangerous. He's not dangerous as a member of the Nation of Islam. He's dangerous when he says, let's let me go out and reach out to Martin Luther King. Let me reach out to the Congress of Racial Equality. Let me reach out to the NAACP and let's put all of our minds together and let's come up with a collective response to racism. That's when Malcolm X becomes dangerous, when he starts to travel to Harvard and the white students start to listen to him. Mm -hmm. And he travels to Cal and they listen to him and he travels to Oxford, right, over there in in, uh, England. And the white students start to listen to him, right? And he goes to Mecca, And he realizes, once he goes to Mecca, that people of similar economic means are in the same position nationwide. And you can have white brothers, like you did in Mecca on the Hajj, and Asian brothers. And you can have brothers from Africa, and you can have them from Indonesia. And they all treat each other with the same level of respect. And so the issue is economic much more so than it is racial, all right? That's when Malcolm X becomes dangerous, and that's essentially when his death warrant is signed, when he comes to that realization.
0: I I mean, we see it now uh, in the the streets that people standing up and using their voice what happens is the people in power say oh no 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 you don't and they start flashbanging you or pepper spraying you or you know beating you with their sticks and i think about uh you know the black wall street and how that was you know a very strong profitable insular in its own way community and again as you said it becomes a threat
1: right it's a threat Yeah, think about this. After the Civil War, black people in the United States owned about 20 million acres of property. 20 million acres of property. My granddad in Ocala owned about 25, I think it was, uh, owned about uh, 25 to 50 acres. And so you had this possibility, you know what I mean, after... Uh, Reconstruction, that things for those freed uh, uh, people of African descent were going to be different until Reconstruction ends, the Klan rises, Jim Crow laws are developed. Right, to actually disfranchise those people who are actually moving in the right direction.
0: And to take them and displace them and, and move them into areas that are not, uh, you know, they're more dangerous or they maybe aren't places where you can grow crops or maybe, you know, right. you to take away the farms from people. You just go in and take it. And right. yeah.
1: Right. And it's- so you had a series, Black Wall Street was one of many such uh, such attacks. You know, and that was part of that, uh, you know, those red summers, you know, because they happened all over the South. You know, they happened all over the South to black towns. There was even a black town in California, Allensworth. Yeah. Yeah, so you had black towns all over the United States.
0: Now, for people who are listening, and some might think, well, well wait a minute, black towns, isn't that segregation? Isn't that what you don't want? Uh, what would you speak to that?
1: You know, I would say this: Okay, if you look at the time when these black towns were established, okay, lynching was legal, right?
0: Still, lynching was legal. Still is. They
1: yes, yes, it was legal. You had people taking postcards. All right. You had people smiling. Yeah, I've. Seen you had people having that, yeah. picnics yeah. around the lynching. Yeah. Kay, you had people taking souvenirs of body parts and selling them.
0: They'd go on W-E-N-G- dates to mostrar- lynching. People would go on a date to go watch yes. a man or woman be hung from a tree for the yes. offense of talking to a white person, or right, you know, or in the case of Emmett Till, not doing anything but being accused of something. Right.
1: Yeah. And that was the 20th century. You had mass lynchings in Arkansas. You had about 240 sharecroppers lynched at one time, Mm -hmm. you know, and you had these atrocities. And so you see the anger in the black community, the anger in the black community is hereditary because it passes on. These stories pass on, right? They pass on from the South, you know when you talk, you know when you when you when you're sitting with your your, your grandma or your granddad, or your, or your your aunties and uncles or your grands, and they tell you these stories. It passes on. Then you see it actually out in the street, and you see it on the news. You know, and now you see it on video on a regular basis, and then you add it with those stories from the past, and you have this explosion. I would say the difference between the Red Summers in the riots the you know, long hot summers of the 60s and the rebellion taking place now is this is a multicultural rebellion and it crosses all socioeconomic groups and more and more people are now seeing more and more people are now seeing you know what's happening
0: yeah the revolution you know, it, will be televised
1: <laughs> it is televised it, it is televised you know, uh, Gil Scott Heron would be proud. He's one of my, uh, uh, you know, he, he's one of my, uh, uh, one of my heroes. You know, he spoke of you know the no knock law before Breonna Taylor. Breonna Taylor was murdered because there is no knock law. You know, Gil Scott Heron, um, he had this poem. It went. Uh, you explained it to me, I must admit, but for the record, you were talking shit. You long rap about no-knock being legislated for the people you've always hated in this hellhole that you, me, we call home. No-knock, the man would say, to stop that man from beating his wife. No-knock, the man would say, to protect them uh, people from themselves. But who's gonna protect me from you, the likes of you, the nerve of you, to talk that shit face-to-face with your tomato face, your deadpan, your deadpan that the brother's freedom plan, no knocking, head rocking, inner shocking, cussing, killing, lying, and being white. And it just goes on and on and on. But so he attacks that problem in the 1970s. So it's, you know, there's nothing new mm-hmm. that, um, you know, that, that Breonna Taylor was killed. You know, that particular, uh, you know, that particular uh, you know law that's been used yeah. you know, to actually just sh- people up.
0: My frustration, too, is when people say, oh, but... You know, there's only a few bad cops. You know, and I and I think, well, here's the thing: if if there's a cop that knows there are bad cops and they don't say anything, they they got they got it on them too. If if you don't stand up for, and you know, the unions are a, um, a problem. There's there's all sorts of problems in there. You know, but if if there are fine, let's say there's a hundred great cops and ten bad ones. If the 90 good ones aren't saying shit, then to me, there's a hundred bad cops. There's just no other way to look at it.
1: Yeah. But, you know, it's not the individual police officer. It's the institution that was created to police black bodies.
0: They were to get slaves back, right? Wasn't that the original purpose? Was to was to get slaves back with runners?
1: Yeah, people. Yeah, African people who were enslaved. They were patrollers. They used to call them patty rollers. That's where the word patrol comes from. And so they would go out and they would police black bodies. So it's not the individual white police officer. It's the institution Mm -hmm. that was created to police black people throughout the history. Of the English colonies first and later the United States, still today. That's why you see black bodies being policed in a much different way, as you see treatment of, you know, I would say black and and brown bodies, much different way than others. And it's the same thing if you look at, you know, what Malcolm X, when he goes to Mecca, he's saying it's not white people who are evil. It's that status of white supremacy, because when he goes there and he sees Muslim people who are white, he eats at the same table, right? He sleeps in the same room as blonde-haired, blue-eyed white people, but he says they don't do not uh, bear that status of being white.
0: Mm.
1: White is a status that is causing the problem of supremacy. Yeah, it's because not it's
0: not evil. even that there are uh, black officers who are also violent against blacks because it's, again, yes. like you say, it's not about the police officer as so much as the system that's the system. them.
1: It's the institu- institutional racism. Mm-hmm. The same thing with the educational system. Mm-hmm. It's the institution. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the institutions that are unfair. If you look around the United States, And you look at money allocated to certain, uh, you know, resources. Yeah, for
0: sure. Resources, again, economics, economics. And this is the the tricky thing about saying defund the police is because that that was literally the worst thing, the worst word I feel like they could have used because immediately people are like, oh, you're not going to have cops? Like, No, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that. It means to take the allocation the, a gross misallocation of funding yes. and putting it back into a community that desperately you should not send an armed police officer into a situation that is not warranted for a crime if there's a wellness check or there's you know this
2: it's so frustrating. Right.
0: You know, when I was growing up
1: when, when I was growing up in Vallejo we had uh, called the Omega Boys and Girls Club Initially, it was a Negro Boys Club, and it was started by Fillmore Graham, a great community organizer. Fillmore Graham, and you had you know Mike Wilson, who still coaches at Vallejo High School. You had Livingston Grant. You had Joe Thurston. You had all of these black leaders of the community who worked with a group called the Police Athletic League, and the Police Athletic League were actually policemen, you know, black, white, whatever policemen who worked with these community activities with the kids. And they worked with the Omega Boys Club. And they had all kind of events. They would send you, you know, to, to see the Giants games. And they funded all sorts of activities. That's what defunding the police looks like. Yeah, it's a more you know, of a community. Teach. Be, yeah, that. coach, yeah.
0: Yeah, because a community. If you take a people, any people, and and you are constantly... Looking over their shoulder. Like think about it as in terms of this. If if I'm at work and I'm working on something and my my boss, let's say, or some coworker comes and stands right behind me and watches me work all day long. I mean, just feeling that right now, I'm sort of my right. shoulders are hunching, I'm feeling aggressive, like get the fuck off me. You right, know, right, and, right. and so if you do that in a community sense with all right. these people, you know, then yeah. <laughs> what do you expect?
1: Do anything. Yeah, and you take people from outside the community. They used to live in the communities. Yeah. You know, so you knew them. Yeah. And you would like to see them coming around. Mm -hmm. But then you bring in these, you know, I tell you exactly what happens as of late. You know, you you have these, uh, uh, you know, you have all this money allocated to the military. So they have all of this surplus equipment. They gave that surplus equipment to the cities. And so all of a sudden... The police, the nature of the police force changes, you know, and so you see these, you know, you're looking out and and you're seeing this, you know, these armed occupiers of the community when they used to be community members.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: leaders. Yeah. Think about if they cut those budgets in half Mm. and, you know, parks and rec, you know, libraries, music, you know, uh, schools. You don't have the police officers work directly in the community as community members, as opposed to being an outside armed occupying force. And then they have a different feeling because they know the people that they're working with. Mm-hmm. That's defund. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: and education. it yeah,
1: gotta come up with another word, yeah, you're right.
0: It's, it's, it's a terrible word because it immediately bristles. Words have power, words have power.
1: Yes, most definitely do. Yeah, so most definitely do.
0: Does the feeling for you, considering you've you've been through other experiences that are similar, does it feel different this time or is it does it feel the same or
1: feels a lot different. You know, again because you have so many people represented. You know, black community in the United States represents about thirteen percent of the population. But that's not what you saw out in this rebellion. And I would tell you, since you're a musician, music has played a key role in changing the, the, the social paradigm. You know, and I noticed that with a lot of the teenagers, they look at each other differently. You know, so, you know, the, you know they, they, they meld together okay, a lot better than they did in the 1960s. Like I said, my community was bordered. You stepped outside that community, then all of a sudden attention. tension you know, rose tremendously. You know, uh, one of the things about this rebellion that, uh, you know, is is also a part of it is you had outside white agitators that really changed the nature of a lot of what was going on, you know, uh, nationally. But if you look at the uh, organic uh, rebellion itself, the organic rebellion was completely different than what it turned, uh, um, what it turned into. You know, but yeah, but it makes me very hopeful, you know, to see all of these people out there. You saw Asians, you saw Latinos, you know, uh, you know, along with the black brothers and sisters. You saw gays, you saw straights. It didn't matter, you know, and, you know, everyone is looking for justice. Yeah, Everybody is looking for justice. You know, now that's the first phase. Now it's the solution time. So now is when we have to move because it's, it's a pressing. Everyone sees how pressing it is. You know, James Baldwin's essay, The Fire Next Time, which was about the uh, long hot summers, was a warning. You know, the fire next time is going to burn much hotter. Can we afford the fire next time to burn hotter than this fire here? Mm. Because this thing is not nationwide. This thing is worldwide.
0: Yes, it is
1: worldwide, but you see that same supremacy acting throughout the globe, because remember, it travels with the age of exploration. And so everybody's dealing with, you know, people of color are dealing with that same, you know, that that same devil of that white supremacy, right? But the, again, the younger generations are looking at things differently,
0: do you think you know, uh, uh, the equilibrium yeah. will be reached? Because we have, there's that whole thing about appropriation, about, you know, white people trying to be black, and yet it's okay to to mimic you, but somehow you're not being worth being equal to. That's confusing. What's that about? You know, there's right. the...
1: I think that's more about money. Instead of being genuine, you know, using the culture of black people to profit off of, as opposed to being genuine partners. You know, using it to profit off of, as opposed to being genuine partners. Okay, think if we didn't have those divisions at all. You know, think of if we taught history properly, you know, from a child that's born today. That child by the time they're 20 and they voted two years, they're gonna make decisions based on their reality about who we are as people, people of color, who we are as people. They're not gonna make their decisions based on the uh, uh, incorrect histories that they were taught. And so in 20 years things, child born today, by the time they're 20, they've been an adult for two years everything changes, you know, everything changes. And right now, you know, we're right in the middle of this, this social paradigm. Now is time to make changes that are going to be long lasting. The next generation will be different. You know, the next generation won't have to worry about, you know, the fire next time if we do things properly now.
0: Yeah, Albert Einstein, they asked him how he thought World War III would be fought, and he said, I don't know, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones.
1: 100% right. Albert Einstein, that professor who taught at Lincoln University, a traditionally black college, like a lot of the uh, uh, Jewish teachers did. They taught at traditionally black colleges because they could not teach outside of traditionally Black college. And there's
0: a long history of, of Jews and Blacks, you know, in solidarity with each other, which I think a lot of people aren't sure. aware of.
1: That, But again, that's history. Mm-hmm. Think about if they, they, if they really understood, you know, Sears and Roebuck, you know, Sears and Roebuck, who were largely responsible for building the state-of-the-art Black schools in the South during Jim Crow. That was built from Sears and Roebuck money. I did not know that. Yeah, think if they they knew that the Sears and Roebuck catalog was made so black people could shop. Since Jim Crow, they couldn't go to Jim Crow stores. Think of if they knew that um, they partnered with W.E.B. Du Bois in finding the Niagara Movement, which eventually becomes the NAACP. That's what I mean by teaching history correctly, Mm -hmm. as opposed to teaching history that's going to maintain this notion of superiority. You know, when Jefferson came up with the idea of history in the first place here, the only reason why he thought American history was important was to create a citizenry that would have civic virtue, because in the republic, it's necessary for the citizens to love the republic. So they'll fight in wars, they'll pay taxes, they'll obey the laws, you know, uh, they vote, et cetera. So if history is taught correctly, then you have this demographic shift that's taking place because the nation is going to become majority-minority within 20 years. White people don't fear that because everybody's an American, And if everybody who is an American has civic virtue for the country, they're going to act virtuous towards a republic. They're going to love the republic. But if you have a large segment of the population that is not virtuous, the fire next time. Rome was a republic and it fell. Yes. Jefferson did not anticipate Facebook. (laughs) No, no, he didn't. Right. And neither did his 250 enslaved African people
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and neither did his uh, Sally Hemings you know who was his uh, his slave I would say concubine yeah
0: I always say concubine
1: Yeah, who was actually the uh, half sister of his wife
0: I did not know that
1: yeah but that's history yeah you know what I mean? That's history. You know, history is different if you look at it closely.
0: When you teach your classes, um, are you given a green light by, I mean, because you teach at a private school and a Catholic school on top of that, mm-hmm. do you find that they are uh, more strict or are they loose about what how you teach, the, the texts you bring in? You know, because I think that matters. You know what, when I first introduced the
1: class, you know, about 30 years ago, 31 years ago, things were much, much different, okay? It was very stressful even to say the word black. You know what I mean? It was stressful to say the word black. So it was a struggle at that point, okay? But, you know, gradually, You know, because I've got, you know, my library at school, I've got about 500 books on African history and culture. You know, I've got about 500 books. And so it's very difficult to argue, you know, with research, resourced information. And we have, uh, um, you know, a Black History Month assembly where we teach to the entire school the essential curriculum of African-American history who we are as people. And so this is us. We had a black family day where we had 250 um, people come to our inaugural one. And we were going to have, you know, a Latinx family day. We are going to have an Asian family day. And everyone is invited. So the school has done a real good job. Now we have a, a, a department of diversity and inclusion, right? So the school has gradually grown okay, with the idea of what I call real history but it took time which is fine because I wasn't going anywhere you know (laughs) you know I wasn't going anywhere and you know you know what I knew to be true isn't going to change because I started teaching you know my the the first person that taught me history was my mom you know she used to sing our lullaby she would sing uh, uh to be young gifted and black Oh, what a lovely way to be. And she would sing that as, you know, we were waking up in the morning. So we would wake up with a completely different attitude of what it meant to be black, even in the 1960s. And okay, then when I went to that school, Flawston, you know, they would bring in young teenage black panthers and they taught black history. Right. And so my whole framework was different historically than Western uh, civilization. You know, then I went to college, San Francisco, I mean, San Jose State, which had a black studies department, a full department. And I studied under the father of, uh, you know, the uh, institution of uh, black history, uh, Dr. Oba Toshaka at San Francisco State University. And I studied under Dr. Richard Navies at Berkeley High School, who created the first uh, black studies uh, uh, courses uh, uh, in high schools okay so my foundation was real strong so it was hard to argue against and you know now you know things are moving more and more in that direction because of the demographic changes taking place in the United States that I think a lot of what you see politically is a reaction to those demographic changes but they shouldn't be feared as long as we all are really Americans yeah yeah and we all have that civic virtue or that love of of self as Americans like Garvey instilled in black Americans you know Garvey instilled in black Americans he used to say up you mighty uh, people you can accomplish what you will Back during the height of, uh, of Jim Crow and lynching up you mighty people, you can't accomplish what you will. All right. So essentially he was saying,
0: hey, don't be afraid of anything. You can do whatever you need to do to be successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the idea that you can imprison a person's body, but not their soul, not their mind.
1: Right. And it, right. Free and it, your mind and your ass will follow. That's
0: right. Free what, your mind and your
1: ass will follow.
0: What is your opinion on cancel culture? Because I, I read a lot about that, of course, and people who've said things when they were 20 versus how now they're 40, or people that say it last week versus now. And the one thing that I think is unfortunate personally about cancel culture is that it does deny the doer of, uh, of growth. Because it immediately says you're out, your life is over, you know, the doxing and all that stuff. Instead of, it seems to me the correct answer would be, you know what, you're not, you're not right here, and this is why, and let's put you in some classes, let's give you some books, let's assign you humanity for a while, and then, yeah. and then come back and reevaluate.
1: Let me give you an example, and I'm glad you brought that up, because that, that brought up something to me. So I told you I was in the hospital for 17 days, all right? So an orderly came in one day, you know, uh, you know, a middle-aged black man, you know, came in one day and said, you don't remember me, do you? I'm like, no. And he said, you remember, you used to come and you would roll up on us on the corner because, you know, there was, you know, young black kids, you know, doing stuff out on the street corner. And you would always stop every single day and you would stop us from doing what we were doing. And you took us over there to the YMCA. And you took us out on the bay in a yacht. Right? And you told us not to get any bad paper. And things will turn out for you if you just keep grinding. And he said that you used to work with us. All of us on the corner on the same block that you lived in and I'm just coming in to thank you. If he would have been held liable for what he had been doing back then, he would be in prison, right? He would have been in prison, all right? He would not have worked in this hospital that he worked in for 20 years, all right? So if people redeem themselves, they should be allowed to be redeemed. That's what you get from the Malcolm X story. And Malcolm X was a big time drug dealer. He was a big time pimp. He was a big time hustler. He did a lot of dirt, right? But he was redeemed. And then he became a very different person. And after that, all he did was good. Yeah, so people should allow be allowed to, to uh, redeem themselves. Yeah, because we're humans. Right, hey, human, we're humans. <laughs> yeah, we should be allowed to be redeemed. I agree. Yeah,
0: I agree. With humans you. make
1: mistakes, and even yeah, if they truly re- repent.
0: Right, that's the thing is that you, you if you provide opportunity for people to grow and learn, I think that that's a healthier because what happens to the person that you destroy them based on whatever their mindset is in the moment is you've right. now created a true enemy of the people. Right. Right. And, and that serves no one.
1: Yeah. What advantage have you gained? Yeah. Yeah. What advantage have you gained? But that's the whole you know, of my argument about, with uh, the
0: prison system, which is so messed up. But like That yeah. uh, that could be a whole five-hour conversation. But that when right. people argue with me, oh, well, they shouldn't be educating people in prison. That's ridiculous. And aren't my tax dollars. And I think, my God, what do you... Do you not want a society that functions, educate? We you know with education and hope. And if you, yeah. if if I can't read, my I love books. I love reading, and I can't imagine the prison yeah. of not I being see. able, you know, not being able to read. And there are so many people in prison that yeah. can't read. It's it's atrocious. Of course, right. you should go in and educate these people, that are in prison. Yeah, white, black, Chinese, whatever, you know.
1: Have you ever visited a prison, been inside?
0: I have, yeah. It's teaching, uh, yeah. doing songs. You said what now? Performing songs.
1: Oh, good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I work with a program called the Squires. Um, we used to take uh, um, youthful offenders into San Quentin. And what the lifers would do is the lifers would take them through the prison, you know, and try to get them to change their ways. And if you go into a prison, like you know, it's a human zoo. How are you supposed to redeem yourself, you know, in that kind of environment? And you figure we got about two and a half million people that we're allowing to waste. Because it
0: makes other people money. It's economics once again. It's crazy.
1: Yes. The value of
0: you in my prison is worth more than what I think the value of you outside as a functioning member of society I, right. I mean, I think people should be able to vote when they get out of prison. I think that that of should course. be restored. But these are considered insane ideas. I don't understand right. if the whole concept of you do a crime, if you are, you know, and we can go into a whole other talk about how many people go to jail on the dump, for the dumbest reasons, people of color. If you, I go into any pot store and it's all a bunch of white people, you know, and still there's all these people of color in jail for having a joint in their pocket. That's right. insanity.
1: Right. It's insanity. It's insanity. And it costs a lot more for the state to have nonproductive people. San Quentin, I think, is something between fifty and $75,000 per person per year. Send them to Stanford instead. Stanford instead of prison. Yeah. You know, it's the same cost dang near. Channel the energy.
0: Channel the... If you take away someone's hope, then that hopeless human is a dangerous human because what have they got to lose?
1: Right. Of course. And a lot of them are brilliant people.
0: Absolutely.
1: Right. And a lot of them, you know, think of how much some of them will read in prison and they become just like Malcolm. Mm Mm-hmm. He reads. He reads everything he gets his hands on. Mm -hmm. He reads the dictionary from cover to cover. So he's a completely different person when he comes out. He becomes an influencer. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, he sways opinions worldwide still today. But he was allowed to be redeemed.
0: Yeah, and unfortunately people hear Malcolm X, the name Malcolm X, and immediately they think of civil disobedience and unrest and they have the you know the picture of him of vilification and it's an so unfortunate because if you read watch watch him being interviewed listen to his speeches there's so much there's so much beautiful value in what he's saying and writing and thinking and and
1: yes right the text we use for african-american studies um you know is autobiography of malcolm x We always start with chapter 11 called Mecca. That's where we start. And if anyone who thinks that Malcolm X is this this terrible person, read the autobiography, but start with the chapter on Mecca. Start with the chapter on Mecca. Because like we talked about, you know, redemption, you know, his total focus changes the organization of Afro-American unity, you know, he's the most, becomes the most uh, 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 sought after speaker at a lot of liberal, you know, liberal arts colleges in the world. You know, the most sought after because of his mind, like you said, and how he develops it. You know, once he, you know, uh, uh, you know once he kicks that, that dope habit he has. All yeah. right, And once he really starts to, to, to figure things out.
0: Yeah, brilliant mind. Yeah, Absolutely. but he's reading.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. When, when you do you have a favorite text that you like to, to use? Do you have one like a definite anyone listening that you could say, here's a great go-to?
1: Favorite book or favorite text?
0: Both. How about we'll give you both. <laughs> <At
1: least. laughs> you know what? Favorite text, I'm gonna have to say uh, uh, I'm gonna have to say Malcolm X because Malcolm X's worldview when he goes to Mecca and he talks about the Bandung Conference and he talks about what people of color can do and he talks about the cooperation he experiences between all races in Mecca. So I would say favorite text is the autobiography because you can use it, it applies to anything because of the the seven different stages that Malcolm goes through. So I would say Malcolm is my favorite text. In terms of my one favorite book, I told you I got five hundred of
0: them. I know, me too.
1: <laughs> I'm going to say Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Oh,
0: such a good book.
1: Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. You know, because what you know, what I have to do is in order to read the book, you know, I have to go back to the historical. Figures and the historical places and the historical events that he talks about in that book Mm. to make it make sense to me. So I don't read it just as a story, I put it in its historical context. And so, you know, I can, you know, read uh, uh, The Invisible Man and my mind will go back to, you know, this book that I've read and it'll go back to this book that I've read. So it allows me to exercise, you know, more of this, uh, you know, exercise more uh, uh, intellect than I would if I just read the book.
0: hmm Yeah, absolutely, Tony. Thank you for your time and your knowledge. Oh, my pleasure. It's been my pleasure. I really appreciate. that. Yeah, considering I reached out to you blindly and you said yes, I'm so thankful for that. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. Because you know, again, you know, what we're trying to do around here. Is um, you haven't been to, to downtown uh, uh, Oakland, but if you look at downtown Oakland, and this is what we're going—another thing we're going to bring up in, in the uh, the movie—you look at down. In fact, I'll share with you some of the artwork in downtown Oakland. All of a sudden, it reminds me of the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. The whole place was, you know, it was the whole downtown was was smashed, which is terrible for those local merchants. But what uh, a lot of youth artists have done is come in and just created these beautiful artworks. So it makes things hopeful, even though it, it really did a lot of uh, uh, economic damage. And you know what we're trying to do with this, uh, you know, with this movie that we come out with is we're essentially trying to do the same thing. You know, we're trying to look at a whole bunch of different viewpoints of what happened during that rebellion. And we're giving a historical overview. And at the end, we're going to offer solutions. Okay, but solutions not from my generation, solutions from Ayana's generation. She's about 25 years of age.
0: Is that the, the you know, that movie that I watched course, that you sent me? Is that her? Is that, the, the movie you sent that, me, is that her?
1: That's a, is she starring in it?
0: No, no, the, the movie you sent me, that's her as a filmmaker. That, yeah.
1: yeah. That's Iana. So she's going to be putting this thing together. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm doing the history part of it. Mm -hmm. Kirk is doing the organizing of it. Mm -hmm. But so what I do, and I just talked to her uh, this morning. I talk to her every day. But what I do is we talk about a historical framework. And what she does is using her creative mind, she bits and pieces it together. And, you know, so every time I come up with a new interview, You know, like like uh, I got a call just out of the blue yesterday. Like I got, you know, your text, you know, from a young man who I used to teach who won the Medal of Valor. You know, the highest, uh, um, you know, the, the highest honor that a civilian can achieve. And he he received it from President Bush, but he's never told anybody about it. Because he's a very humble guy, but he's agreed to be part of it. But he's an Oakland, he's an Oakland kid. He's not a kid, he's a grown man now. But he was a hero and uh on 9-11 when the planes hit, all right, and he's stuck in there, but now he's got PTSD. But what he's offering is he's offering, you know, solutions. So that's what we're gonna finish up the movie with, is solutions to, you know, everything that we talked about.
0: And where will that movie be made available? How can people find it? And-
1: well, what we're going to do is there's a, uh, the name of our company, Melanin Works Media. Melanin Works Media. So what we'll do is, is I'll send it to you, uh, you know, the link to it, uh, you know, just like we did with, with her movie. And, you know, I'll send you the links to those uh, that artwork that I told you about, too. It's it's really, you're going to be impressed. It's really amazing.
0: I'm excited. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It offers hope.
0: And I put put links on the Hey Human podcast links page, and people go there, and they can get all this information. I'll put books that we've talked about and historical information and all of that, because I think it's so important we have to tell we have to tell the stories that's the that's the other issue with the the oral tradition falling away in a in a world that's become digitized is we're losing all these stories
1: that's that's why i love this podcast once you sent it to me and i started going through these and i like the name hey human that's who we are yeah 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 we're humans even though we haven't, you know, we've had to do all this social distancing, which has caused a lot of stress for a lot of people. Yeah. We're human beings. Yeah. We're meant to, uh, you know, associate in this manner. Yeah. We're meant to associate in this manner. You know, I, I always told my kids, my son is open fire. So he's been a part of the struggle out there in the streets. You know, yeah, you know, my daughter's a, an executive at Apple, but you know, they came from very, you know, very humble roots. My daughter started slinging uh, cell phones for minimum wage in a kiosk. Okay, now she's a top uh, international executive at, at Apple. You know, so it's possible, but what you have to do is maintain human connections and understand how people work and talk to people and communicate, you know, across, you know, what we consider racial lines, which are just, you know, uh, 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 a series of social statuses, you know, created for you know nefarious reasons.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Tony, thank you. I wish you yeah, huge pleasure. success for uh, the movie as well. That's exciting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you
1: know, it's been a real pleasure, and I'm going to update you on the movie because it's going to be great.
0: I'm very excited, Tony. Thank you. Yeah. Have a lovely. No, thank you. Have a lovely day. Bye. It. Bye, everybody. Right, Bye, now rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, everybody. Stay safe. Be love. Bye.